0: Season of Lent, we, we are working to prepare our hearts for Easter. And for a long time, I felt that uh, in, in, in the types of churches that I have been a part of, we have not always done a great job preparing our heart to truly celebrate what Easter is, is all about. So we're taking some time to, to think about the story of Easter and to get our hearts ready. And, and part of that is, is grieving, there's a grieving aspect to the Lent season, as we think about what Christ is going to go through. And as we're preparing our hearts and thinking of different ways to kind of think through the story, we are focusing on the uh, the bad boys of Easter, is the name of the, the series that I'm doing. We're looking at four different villains who all contributed to the death of Christ. And each one, each bad boy of Easter, represents a different way of relating to Jesus. So as we we look at these different characters, each one responds to Christ in a way that we can learn from and in ways that we would not want to uh, emulate. Our first villain was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was uh, the high priest at the time of Christ's death, and he represented a corrupt religion. And and Caiaphas was flat-out opposed to to Jesus. That was his way of relating to Christ was nothing but opposition. Today we're going to consider the story of Herod Antipas. Caiaphas represented corrupt religion. Herod Antipas represents political corruption. Both of them came to power through family connections. Caiaphas married into religious power Herod Antipas was born into political power. Of the two, Caiaphas was the stronger leader. Herod Antipas comes across as kind of privileged and and inept. Um, The family of Herod, what gets complicated in the Gospels, is there are actually six different Herods mentioned. And many times we confuse the Herod who is present at the birth of Christ and the Herod who is present when Christ is is tried and before he is crucified. So I want to introduce, I want to talk a little bit first about Herod the Great. Herod the Great is is not the villain in today's story, but it helps to know a little bit about him. This is the Herod of the Nativity story. Uh, Artists have been pretty hard on Herod the Great. And here's, this is an even less flattering picture of, of Herod the Great. Um, but here's what, he, here's what he really looked like. Um looked a little bit more, more like that. Herod the Great was an, an Arab whose family converted to Judaism. Herod the Great was appointed king of Judea by Caesar. So he ruled over all of Judea. And he was a great builder. Herod the Great built a uh, roads, he built cities. He, he built the city of Caesarea, which is where Pilate lived. And one of the grandest building projects of all was, was rebuilding the temple where the Jews worshiped. And it had been destroyed for about four or 500 years, and Herod the Great re- rebuilt it. And it was uh, destroyed again uh, in 70 AD. So it only existed for a short period of time. Herod the Great was at one point the president of the Olympics. So the Olympics go all the way back into Greek history and there was a year where Herod the Great served as the president of the Olympic Games. He had 10 wives and 14 uh, children. And as he aged, he became increasingly paranoid. He killed uh, Miriam, the love of of his life, her two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother because he feared that one of them, one of the sons, might uh, replace him as king. There was a saying at the day that it is better to be Herod's sow than his son, because his pigs had a longer lifespan than his his sons. It was during the last phase of Herod the Great's life that he ordered the slaughter of the innocents in the nativity story, an attempt to kill Jesus, whom the wise man had referred to as a king. Herod the Great died shortly after the birth of Christ and it was his death that prompted Joseph and Mary to move from Egypt back to Nazareth. Herod lived a despicable life and he died a a fitting death. Historians report that he died of of gangrene of the genitalia. Uh, So a, a horrible death For a horrible, vile person. When Herod the Great died, Caesar split up Judea and and split the responsibility among four of his sons. Herod uh, Antipas was governor of one quarter of Judea. His brothers ruled over the other quarters, and Pilate ruled over a section that included Judea. Herod Antipas, the villain in today's story, was the person who ruled. Uh, over Galilee during the time of Jesus' ministry. And I have an interesting story about Antipas. This is a point of trivia that I thought I thought of this morning that I would pass along to you because it's fascinating to me. But Herod Antipas had a household manager whose name was Chusa. Kind of like a chief of staff for Herod Antipas. Chusa's wife was named Joanna. And Joanna is mentioned twice in the Bible. She actually financed the ministry of Jesus Christ. And she is one of the people who prepared Christ's body for burial and was one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Someone that close to Herod Antipas actually supporting the ministry of Jesus. At one point... um, One other point of trivia that I almost missed. Um, Like his father, Herod Antipas was also a builder. And he built a city called Sepphoris. And Sepphoris was just a few miles away from Nazareth. And historians and Bible scholars uh, suspect that Jesus and Joseph probably worked on the construction of, of Sepphoris, a city that Herod Antipas built. We think of Joseph as a carpenter with wood. The word that's actually used in the Bible simply means builder. And it's more likely that Joseph was a stonemason because there wasn't a whole lot of wood in that that area. In A.D. 29, just a couple of years before Jesus' ministry began, um, Antipas was traveling to Rome and he stopped to see his brother, Herod Philip. While he was visiting with Herod Philip, he fell in love with Herodias, Philip's wife who also happened to be his niece. Both of them decided to divorce their spouses so that they could marry each other. This is all going to get very confusing. Herodias had a daughter named Salome. To make things even more complicated, Salome eventually married her uncle, Antipas's other brother, who was also named Philip. So for those of you old enough to remember the Bob Newhart show, remember Larry, Daryl, and Daryl? Uh, two brothers named Daryl. Well, Antipas had two brothers, both named, named Philip. Needless to say, family reunions for the Herod family must have been very complicated. All of this is relevant to Antipas's first appearance in the Gospels. Antipas is the Herod who killed John the Baptist. The other thing that makes Herod so relevant today is that Antipas happened to be in town for Passover, The the spring that Jesus was arrested, crucified, and rose again. Herod and Jesus' lives intersect three times in the gospel. And we're going to look at them briefly and also share just a few observations that we can pull from the story of Herod Antipas. Let me start by reading the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. This is from Mark chapter 6. For Herod himself had given orders to have John the Baptist arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, "'It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife.'" So John the Baptist is confronting Herod Antipas, saying, you can't divorce your spouse and marry your sister-in-law. That's not appropriate for a, a governor to do, and John the Baptist is confronting him. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod is a person who was was curious about spiritual matters. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. A couple of observations about this story. One is that in the Sunday school version of the story, Salome is like an innocent little, little girl who's dancing in a, a middle school uh, production or talent show and all the men think she's cute uh, until she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Uh, I don't think that's an accurate picture at all of what was going on. Um, There are many paintings of of Salome dancing before Herod and the men, uh, but none of them, or very few of them, are appropriate for a Sunday morning service, so I'm not showing them to you. Um, This appears to be an an all-male party attended by a bunch of, of rich and powerful men. The word for daughter that's used in this case indicates a daughter who is of an age to be married. And, and having a daughter of this age, uh, uh, putting her in a situation where she's forced to dance in front of a group of men like this would be highly inappropriate culturally, and it certainly puts Salome in a, in a horrible position. Salome is trapped between a bunch of powerful drunken men and a conniving and bitter mother. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. This was a common expression that men would use to show off at the time. He's not speaking literally. He didn't really have a kingdom to give. um, But it's a way of bragging about his generosity and his power. Siloam doesn't know quite what to do. So she goes out and says to her mother, what shall I ask for? And Herodias replies, the head of John the Baptist. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Then a little bit of time goes by. Rumors start to circulate about a prophet out in the wilderness who's healing people and teaching amazing things and casting out demons. And Antipas, a suspicious man that he is, He hears about it and he's scared. He's afraid that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Then reading along in the Gospel of Luke, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Again, Antipas demonstrates that he is a man of spiritual curiosity. He's interested in these stories about Jesus who's out in the wilderness teaching and performing miracles. If you read the verses that follow this, it says that after Herod had, had made this request to see Jesus, instead of meeting with him, Jesus withdrew, and he withdrew into an area that was outside of Antipas's jurisdiction. Here's the first observation from today's story. Some practical things that we can glean from the story of these interactions between Antipas and Jesus. The first is that curiosity about Jesus is a first step in conversion. The, the, the initial step in responding to Christ is merely being curious about him. But something pricks a person's interest and they want to know more. And that's a starting point in the process of entering a relationship with Christ. The second incident that occurs where, where Jesus and Antipas' life intersect occurs when Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is that time between the resurrection of Lazarus, which was a few months before the crucifixion. And and Jesus hears of a plot to take his life. He takes off and he hides in the desert area uh, outside of Jerusalem. And he's out in that area and he begins to make his way toward Jerusalem for Passover. He's probably in an area called Perea. So at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod Antipas wants to kill you. There are a number of things that may be going on here. It's possible that Antis heard that Jesus was in the area and he was angry that Jesus had avoided him. It's also possible that the Pharisees just kind of made this up. It's highly unlikely, extremely unlikely, that the Pharisees were trying to help Jesus out here. Um... That's definitely not what's going on. Um, they may have been trying to scare Jesus out of the area. Uh, it's also possible that they disliked Antipas even more than they disliked Jesus. But here is Jesus' reply. He says, go tell that fox that I will keep on dri- driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. This incident happens three days before Palm Sunday when Jesus has his triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. We tend to read personality traits into animals, don't we? If we call someone a a lion, uh, that's kind of taken as a a compliment. We're we're complimenting them on their, their power or something to that effect. If we call them a snake or a dog, it's an insult, Our understanding of the fox is shaped by fairy tales. When we hear of a fox, we think of someone who is perhaps cunning, uh, someone who is sly. Some of the fairy tales present fox as greedy, uh, possibly dangerous or devious. But there is another meaning in the Greek and Hebrew that English-speaking people miss. There's something else going on in this insult that we we tend to read Grimm's fairy tales into it. Um, But back at that time, there was a contrast made between lions and fox. To call someone a lion was to refer to them as someone who is mighty and fearsome. To call someone a fox was to refer to them as a person who is insignificant and cowardly. What happens when you, have any of you run into a fox? I actually ran into a fox this last week. I hardly ever see them, but I was out behind our house, and I was going for a walk, and I saw a fox. And the fox did what fox always do. Have any of you ever been attacked by a fox? No. When you see a fox, they turn and they run as fast as they can. Fox are, are cowardly. So when Jesus calls Herod a fox, he is not complimenting him on being cunning, but he is basically saying something that's more like uh, a term that we would use as maybe a, a peon. Someone who thinks they are powerful, but they're not. They think they are big, but they are small. They think they are courageous, but they are cowards. So Jesus is confronting Herod Antipas in a way that is, is um, uh, not too flattering reading ahead in the passage Jesus says in any case I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem here's here's the irony in the story the irony in the story is that Jesus was safer in the territory of Antipas than he would be in Jerusalem in the company of the high priests but Jesus is intent on getting to Jerusalem Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers chicks under her wings um, and you were not willing. Your, look, your house is left to you desolate. Some interesting things going on in this passage. One is that Jesus is expressing love even for the Pharisees who had been out to get him from day one. He's saying, I longed to gather you like a hen protects her chicks, but you instead chose to live in an empty house. This leads to our next two kind of observations from the story. Observation number three is that Jesus longs for sinful people to repent. There's a longing in Christ's heart even for people who are constantly harassing him and plotting against him and seeking to kill him and Jesus is longing for their repentance. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And the fourth observation is some people will choose to live in an empty house rather than align with Jesus. When faced with the opportunity of gathering to Jesus like a hen gathering her chicks, the Pharisees chose otherwise, as does Herod Antipas. And instead of entering the riches that come from a life connected to Jesus, they chose lives that are like living in an empty, vacant house. You're seeing steps that are involved in a person who is considering a relationship with Christ. There are choices that are in, that need to be made along the way. And then Jesus quotes a passage from Psalm 118. And that was the passage that Suzanne read, um, telling them that the next time they see him in three days, he will be entering Jerusalem to the welcome of a king. This passage that I'm going to read is actually a cry that was heard on Palm Sunday. So it's Jesus, three days later when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, the crowds were calling out this line from Psalm 118. Jesus says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus only quoted the first half of the verse because the Pharisees would have known the second part. This is a song that they would have sung every year at Passover time. The entire passage reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. Again, an invitation to enter the house of the Lord and the blessings that come with it. Those are Jesus' first two encounters with Herod Antipas. The final account encounter occurs early on the morning of the day of the crucifixion. Both Pilate and Herod Antipas are in town to keep peace during Jerusalem. Remember we talked about last week, massive crowds would have come to Jerusalem for Passover, similar to if everyone from Detroit came and stayed in Springfield. The city is packed and the rulers are in town with their soldiers to keep the peace. Caiaphas has turned Jesus over to Pilate to have him executed. And Pilate repeatedly finds Jesus innocent and tries to release him. That brings us to Luke chapter 23. It says, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Their accusations have changed at this point. If you follow the story of Christ's trials, they were accusing him of other things all during the night, but now when they're before Pilate, they accuse him of opposing Caesar. They're playing off of, of Pilate's fear of upsetting Caesar, which would cost him his position. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied, then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and now he has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he heard that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod Antipas, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So what's happening is, Pilate is caught up in this drama surrounding Christ. The Jews and Caiaphas are calling for his death. Pilate repeatedly finds him innocent, is trying to release him, and then he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and he thinks, aha! Herod Antipas is in town, I'm going to pass the buck to Herod. I'm going to send him and let Antipas find him guilty and order his death. And then only Luke records this this phase of Jesus' trial, Jesus' appearance before Antipas. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a miracle of some sort. He plied Jesus with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends, because before this, they had been enemies." This leads to our final observation from the story. Each one of these villains teaches us something different about how to relate to Jesus. The final observation from Antipas is that interest in Jesus without a recognition that he is our king leaves us on the side of Herod Antipas. It's easy to be curious about Jesus. It's easy to want to see something miraculous. But Herod's relationship with Jesus ends there. There's nothing more than curiosity. Jesus longs to gather us into his care like a mother hen seeks to protect her chicks. But entering the care of Christ requires that we recognize him as our king. Forgiveness was available even to people like Herod. No amount of sin, no history of opposition or rejection puts us beyond the reach of God's grace. So as we close, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I ask a question. Where are you with Jesus? Caiaphas finished his life in opposition to Jesus. Herod finishes his life amused and curious about Jesus, but still in a state of unbelief. The Lord's table is where we celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross. Like baptism, it is an expression of our faith and our commitment to Jesus. When we come to Jesus recognizing his right to be our king, believing that he died for our sins, and trusting in the power of his resurrection, he forgives our sins and gives us the Holy Spirit. He grants us citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. I want to invite you to join me in prayer, reaffirming our commitment to Jesus, or perhaps making this commitment for the very first time, If you are comfortable doing so, please repeat after me in prayer. Father, we come to you today as sinners. We have sinned by doing things we shouldn't, we have sinned by failing to do things we should, we have sinned by unbelief. And by rejecting your authority as our king. But today we recognize you as our king. We repent of our sins. We declare with our mouths Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead. Help us to submit to your authority as our King and to do the work of the kingdom. Amen. High King of heaven, my victory.